Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good. You have smeared me with lies. I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of silver and gold wow see and this one says gold and silver see they somebody somebody went backwards on that baby his says silver and gold mine says gold and silver okay here's what we have um i'll make these two corrections right now well actually one of them isn't a correction but last week i mentioned the word liturgos and i said it was connected to the word liturgy and it wasn't my friend caught me on that i was thinking of a completely different word but i thought i'd correct that right now in case you made a comment in your Bible. And then the second one is, he got down on me because I mentioned flat earthers and I said at the time of Columbus, um, uh, I wasn't talking about Columbus. That's why Columbus went, is to look for a passage to Japan. But people at that time thought that the world, he was gonna just sail off the edge. So, mm -hmm. but, you know, just wanna make sure that people know that uh, uh, I wasn't making stuff up, that uh, one of them was wrong and one of them was uh, just somebody thinking I was saying something that wasn't right. Um, here, I got an email from somebody. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just thought it was nice. And um, too bad there's nobody here yet to uh, hear it, but Charlie, that's okay. Should that be on? What? The screen? Yeah, it's, unless it's uh, not working, but as long as it's on, Sergio's doing something. Oh, okay. You might send him an email and just ask yeah, if uh, he's having problems. Um, just made it to our first Thursday Bible study. We just want to praise God uh, first. And uh, well, she just talks about the preaching and teaching. And let's see here. Um, she says it's a breath of fresh air, and they listen to the prophecy updates. And um, I don't want to read anything about me because you don't yes, want to hear that. But I'm no, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Due to the apostate church growth, it has been 11 years since we have been around a body of true believers. Imagine wow. that 11 years. 11. I can see how it's blessed. Uh, I won't give the name. Um, while we listen to the Bible study, and she calls people by their name. Yesterday, she said with excitement, oh, Linda is right. You must have said something. <laughs> so our small uh, congregation certainly lifts her spirits. So don't change a thing about how you preach or do prophecy oh, updates. Yeah, we love everything about it. So isn't that wonderful? And uh, serving him until we meet in the clouds, they say. So, well, I, I will give their first names only because yeah. they did say I could yeah. read this, but I, they, they signed it, Mike and Sonny. So I'll leave it at that. And I'm not going to say any more and get them in trouble. But are they from the United States? Yeah, they're from the U.S. They're right here. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, then we got some prayer requests. Um, Bruce and George. Um, Bruce is having knee surgery next Tuesday, and he's in great pain. And then George has knee pain, and so we'll pray for both of them. And then Nance is still struggling with the loss of her mother and the things that go along with that. And Freda, who is usually here, uh, is sick today. She she got something. She was just wiped out. So it could be a flu. It could be, yeah. you know, a, a pollen in the air, something. So she's not feeling well. And then we also have, obviously, Miss Magnuson still isn't here. So she's yeah. still not doing well. We want to keep her in prayer. And Darla, you know, until she, she shows up in this church again, we'll keep praying for her. I did hear, I did text her. She said she was getting over bronchitis. Oh, yeah, she had bronchitis. I meant to mention that. Yeah. So she wouldn't come in here anyway yeah. with bronchitis. Yeah. So she's yeah. just gone through a whole patch of it. But yeah. that came from the church, from the hospital. Her husband got it. So it's oh. just been going around. Yeah. But um, and then we have, of course, lots of people that are in North Carolina. And the people in North Carolina right now are going through the 
um, storm. It's passed all the way up to the north of North Carolina, and it's just on the Virginia border now. But we might as well keep all of them in prayer as well, because, you know, this is uh, it's just been winds. It's been rain. But more than anything, at this point in the storm, it's just that maybe branches falling on somebody or something. I don't think there's going to be trees down, but uh, it's they've had enough rain up in that area. And now they've got this. So keep all of them in prayer. And then um, let, let me read this here. This day in Christian history would be 11 October and then we'll get into the Bible class. Let's see here. Why would anyone sail west to get to the east? In 1451, a boy named Cristoforo Colombo, hey, talking about Christopher Columbus, was born in Genoa. We know him as Christopher Columbus. Christopher means Christ bearer. And he was undoubtedly named after St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers. In those days, people took the meaning of their name seriously and Columbus took his name as a sign that he was to bear the name of Christ across the seas to those who didn't know him. By the age of 20, Columbus had already experienced shipwreck off the coast of Portugal. After making it to shore, he joined his brother in Lisbon. By 1484, the two brothers were employed as map makers. Columbus became convinced that the shortcut to the Orient was west. He calculated that the distance from the Canary Islands to Japan was 2,760 miles. He'd obviously figured wrong, but God knew there was something important to discover just 150 miles further than where Columbus thought Japan would be. Columbus made a proposal to King John II of Portugal that he finance a westward expedition to the Orient, but it was turned down. The king thought the earth was flat. No, I just made that up. Um, he then became convinced that God wanted King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain to be his sponsors. They finally agreed. Before dawn on August 3rd, 1492, Columbus knelt on the dock to receive Holy Communion before rowing out to board the Santa Maria, where his crew waited. Two accompanying ships, the Pinta and the Nina, were captained by Martin and Vincent Pinzon, two brothers who shared his vision. As his ship sailed westward toward the unknown, Columbus wrote in his journal Bible verses such as, listen to me, all of you in far off lands. The Lord called me before my birth from within the womb. He called me by name. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. On October 9th, there was an emergency conference between Columbus and Martin and Vincent Pinzon. The brothers warned Columbus that they feared a mutiny unless they immediately turned back to Spain. Columbus was unable to bargain with them for three more days, agreeing that if they had not sighted land by October 12th, he would turn back. The next day, the convoy sailed hard, covering the second most miles of any day on the trip thus far. That day, for the first time, Columbus was openly challenged by his crew. By October 11th, 1492, the men were tense and the officers testy, but Columbus was confident that God would soon reveal the promised land. Then a shout went up from the Pinta that a reed and a small piece of wood that obviously had been shaped by a man were seen in the water. Next, the Nina sighted a small twig with roses on it. The mood of the crew transformed with their eyes glued to the horizon. Columbus was a seaman briefly. Columbus and a seaman briefly saw light at 10 p.m. that disappeared within a few minutes. At 2 a.m. the next morning, just four hours before dawn on the third and final day before turning back, the lookout aboard the Pinta shouted, shouted, land, land. There in the moonlight, they saw a low white cliff. Columbus was the first person to set foot on land. He named the island San Salvador, meaning Holy Savior. 
They all knelt in the sand and with tears in their eyes as Columbus prayed, O Lord Almighty and everlasting God, by thy holy word thou hast created the heaven and the earth and the sea. Blessed and glorified be thy name and praise be thy majesty, which hath deigned to use us, thy humble servants, that thy holy name may be proclaimed in this second part of the earth. To what extent do you believe that God was involved in Columbus's discovery of America? This second part of the earth? Do you believe that Columbus was sincere in desiring the spread of the gospel? Do you see any relationship between Columbus's goal and the later success of the gospel in the Americas? Psalm 2.8 says, Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. That was. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the many blessings of this life. We thank you that you've planted us in this land where we can enjoy freedoms and uh, uh, all kinds of good things that come from your open hand of grace. And Lord, we just love you. We exalt you. We praise you for all that you've done for us here. And we ask that you look kindly and with favor on those that we mentioned who are sick and with trouble and uh, difficulties and storms and just all the things that uh, keep us from being able to praise you and worship you in uh, lightness of heart and in joy of spirit. We would ask that you would just give us the ability to do that and turn our minds to you and the things of this world will pass away. They'll seem like nothing. So I would pray that uh, just once again, be with these people, help them to know that you are with them even in their times of trouble. And Lord, we ask that you bless this time together and we thank you for this class and we thank you in Jesus' name, bless. amen. Oh yes, we also pray for Les who's got to preach on uh, He's going to preach on Sunday, his third time preaching and uh, in a row, and we would ask that you would just bless him and keep him uh, uh, on a straight course of proper preaching and uh, edifying the people he's preaching to. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Romans 15, verse 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Okay, well, that was a long one. You didn't give me time to even open the thing. Yeah, yeah sure enough. Okay, let me put that baby down. And yeah, that's about the same. I'm not going to read mine. 1517. In the previous verse, Paul clearly laid out his ministerial service as one of a priestly role in this capacity. And because of it, he now states, therefore, in essence, because of that, therefore this. And then he moves directly into his explanation. I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. In this thought, he uses the exact same term, ta prostonteon, in things which pertain to God, which is later used in Hebrews 5, verse 1. This then shows that what he was referring to in verse 16 is to be interpreted as pertaining to functions of a priestly nature. His ministry, which is directed to the Gentile people, has been specially instituted that the, uh, as he says, that the offerings of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And because it is, Paul has had a reason to glory, as he says, in Christ Jesus. The word to glory here is variously translated as boast, be enthusiastic, have pride, brag, and so on. But despite the personal nature of the word, it is a boasting which is not for himself, but in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, Christ made the selection. Christ gave the strength, Christ endowed with wisdom to convey, and so forth. He is the author and finisher of our faith, and thus whatever is our boast, it ultimately belongs to him. 
just as Paul will later state in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read you what he says there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says, but of him you are in Christ. Let me make sure I've got the right. Yes, 130 and 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Some say he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord, etc. So there you go. To personally boast in what one has not earned is self-seeking and it's conceited. And the premise of our salvation, sanctification, duties in Christ, glorification, and so on, is that all of it, all is God's work in and through us. And so, to God be the glory. Without the cross, none of it would be possible. And because of the cross, everything else in the process then comes by his grace. No boasting on our part. Life application, when we accomplish a deed for the Lord, be it small or great, we must ultimately give God the glory for it. We wouldn't be in the Lord if it wasn't for the Lord's work. Likewise, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been granted without the Lord's work, and the deeds could not have come about without either. It all inevitably goes back to the glory of God. Verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. What he has said and done. And you finish too quickly. Again, I'm trying to make a note here, and here you are finishing up. So let me, that's okay. You just take your time. Um, let's see. Okay, I got a note down. That goes there. That down. All right. Let me check that and see if it even matches what you just read. That was 15, 18. For I, yeah, it's close. For I will not dare to speak of anything, any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in his word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In the preceding verse, Paul stated, Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. In substantiation of this, he begins this verse with for. There was sufficient reason for him to glory in the matters related to his ministry for God and to demonstrate his apostolic authority based on Christ's effective working in him. And because of this, he says that he will not dare to speak any of those things which Christ has not accomplished, as he says, through me. And so, when he notes his accomplishments, the words and the deeds were brought about, not by his own power, but by the power of Christ. In Acts and in the epistles, there are evidences of miracles and signs being brought about through him, and yet they aren't the main focus of his ministry. If they were, one might think that they were either made up or that he was somehow endowed with these in his own right, which is what people seem to think today. Right. You get these charismatic and Pentecostals that go out and claim healing over people and they act as if they're the conduit and they are the in, in, initiating of the conduit. You know, they claim things that they have no authority over. It's a good point to stop right there and to just say, as perfect substantiation that these people are false teachers, all we need to do is go to the Bible itself and see that Paul didn't heal everybody that was sick. He left Epaphroditus sick. He almost died. He said, hey, I'm returning Epaphroditus to you. who's my own heart. He almost died for the sake of the gospel. And he left um, Trophimus sick in Miletus. Remember that? Okay. He wrote to Timothy, who he'd been with a million times, and Timothy constantly struggled with what? Stomach, Stomach problems. Right. He didn't, I heal thee. He didn't do that over him, right? What did he do? He said, go drink some wine. Okay. So there you go. The, the issue of healing is solely up to God, even during the time of the apostles. 
I don't know what prompted an apostle to say, I need to heal this person and I know I can do it. But he, just like the Old Testament saints prophesied and they knew when it was time to prophesy, the apostles knew when it was time to heal somebody and it wasn't all the time and they didn't claim it in Jesus' name. They just went up and they said, well, they did claim it in Jesus' name, but they didn't do it the way they do it nowadays in charismatic and, and uh, Pentecostal churches. It, it's a false teaching. It's a false doctrine. And people that go there expecting to be healed are going to be misled. That's all there is to it. The Lord, I believe in faith healing. I do not believe in faith healers. There's a giant difference between the two. When Why would we pray for somebody like Fred or Miss Magnuson? Why would we do that if we didn't believe that the Lord would hear and respond according to his wisdom? Of course, I believe in faith healing. But I do not believe in any person that says, I heal you in Jesus' name nowadays. He has no authority to do that. That's just not the way it works. He has no apostolic authority. That was an apostolic gift. And uh, if you disagree with me, disagree with me. I don't care. I just, I, I have never seen anything to substantiate that in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, the only time I've seen it is when it was obviously and patently false. So, whatever. Um, so, um, let's see here. Where was I? Verse 15, uh, through me. And, um, yeah, it's evident that they were the result of Christ working in him. Uh, it wasn't him working, in other words. Okay. In fact, there are times when the miracles were lacking. Oh, here, I'm going to do it right here. I just stopped the next page. 2 Timothy 4.20, it says he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. I mentioned that. And um, 1 Timothy 5.23, told Timothy no longer drink water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. I had to just read these and then give my thoughts. But I don't want, if, I don't want to forget what I'm thinking of. So, all right, anyway, um, yeah, he said there, not only drink uh, water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Uh, you know what? If you can't sleep, red wine's the best thing in the world. It, I, I would never take, for a while there, I took, a, what do you call it, those things that help you sleep? Um, it, uh, no, well, it's got a certain thing in there that makes you sleep. And, oh, melatonin. Not melatonin. Not melatonin. Uh, uh, well, no, no. Benadryl gives me hives. Oh, anyway. It's, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a homeopathic. Well, no, there's something that you... St. John's for... Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, it, it, no, that's it's a sleeping pill. It's sleeping pill. It, listen, they, they are not good for you. They're, they're, they're just not. If you want to sleep and you can't sleep, just have a cup of uh, a glass of red wine. That will help you, okay? And, you know, I, I know that because when I used to drink beer a lot, you know, before I met the Lord... And I would drink. I had no idea why I was always having bizarre dreams. Oh, I, I did. I just, uh, my dreams were always bizarre. And then when I stopped drinking beer, they went away, but I didn't make the connection. And then I had a beer one day and before I went to bed and I had these really bizarre dreams. And I realized, and so when people post to me or they post on Facebook and say, I've been having bad dreams or somebody will email me and say, I think I'm, you know, something's, I, I say, have you changed your diet? Yeah. And almost always they'll say, yeah, I stopped taking starches or I started eating starches or something. They've changed your diet. You're di you know, who, what was it? Uh, a Christmas Carol when he wrote that uh, um, he was talking to the, the ghost of Jacob Marley. And he yeah. says, you're just a piece of undigested beef. And I realized that people have always known that your, your diet will affect your dreams. Mm -hmm. If you have, you know, I mean, if you, if you don't drink, don't drink. And if you don't like wine, don't drink wine. But if you want to sleep well, don't take sleeping pills. Just drink a glass of Merlot, and I'm telling you, it really does help. Yeah, that gives me headache. Okay, well then don't do it. That's what I'm saying. I mean, try it out, but it will work for me. If I can't sleep, I will have a glass of Merlot, and it'll put me to sleep, and I'll have very nice dreams. Oh, it gives you good dreams. Very, very nice dreams, yes. 
Okay, so whatever. Um, everybody's different. I'm not saying that people are supposed to be drinking or not drinking or whatever, but, you know, people will say, oh, you shouldn't be drinking when you're a Christian, right? But then they're the same people that'll say, well, I take sleeping pills because I can't sleep at night. Well, which one is worse? Jesus' first miracle was to make wine. I mean, come on, people. Okay, anyway, let's go on. Um, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 5, 3, drink not just uh, water, but a little wine. And then he says, if Paul was the one to wield these powers, or if he had authority over the Spirit of Christ in him, he could have claimed healing in Jesus' name and taking care of both of these. Even more to the point was his own affliction. He asked for it to be removed from him three times, and yet the Lord left it with him, saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, somebody was posting about Benny Hinn one day, and I cited that verse to him, and he says, well, faith healing doesn't work on yourself. And I thought, well, that's a good excuse for, you know, continuing to trust Benny Hinn. Anyway, um, by these things, it is manifest that what is noted and the healings that were wrought were solely by the work of Christ in him. Because this is so, there was no boasting in him, but rather glorying in Christ Jesus. And I see I've got to make that a small H um, right there. Okay. And um, glorying in Christ Jesus. And what is the purpose of these things? It is that in word and deed, Christ was working through Paul, as he says, to make the Gentiles obedient. Paul's ministry was unique in that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Christ worked through him to secure for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Kind of like what we read there in the uh, thing about uh, Chris, Chris Kringle or Chris whatever. Um, Columbus, thank you. What is apparent from this is that the church is dependent on the letters of Paul for its direction and edification. What he writes is our doctrine. At some point, the church age is going to end, and Israel will again be the focus of God's attention. But until that occurs, we are to rely on the directives given by Paul, not because they're from him personally, but because they are from Christ through him and specifically designed for this dispensation, the church age. That's why if you're a dispensationalist, you want to go to where the source of your doctrine comes from. If you are living before the time of Christ, where would you go for your doctrine? The law of Moses, right? Of course. Well, the law of Moses is annulled in Christ. Why would you go back and use that for your doctrine? You can use it for instruction. You can use it for edification. You can use it for training in righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't use it for your doctrine of how you are going to conduct your affairs because it's not applicable anymore, right? What is applicable right now is the letters of Paul to the church. That is what applies for our doctrine. Everything else is some type of explanation, some type of useful purpose for us, but it is not the doctrine, not where we get it. Paul's letters are where we go to get that. I, I could say that a million times, and I don't think I could say it enough, because people will continuously deviate from that precept. It's it's very easy to do, because, you know, somebody starts quoting Matthew something, um, whatever, and you think, well, how do... John 3.16. John well, John 3.16 is different, and uh, Jim and I were talking about that. The, the Gospel of John is a transition gospel. Unlike the three synoptic gospels, it is a transition gospel. The words in John apply as much under the law as they do during the church age. It's transitioning. It's showing a fuller sense of Christology, Christology than you're going to get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Matthew Mark, and Luke are solely Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf. That's what it's focusing on. 
It's not written to the church. It has nothing to do with the church until after his death, burial, and resurrection. Zero. After that, then you have things that do apply. When Jesus said, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making the, uh, disciples of all nations or whatever. I know I got that out of order, but that's what we're to do. Why? Because he is the Lord. He is now giving instruction to his people to do something new. Okay. When he says baptize, he means baptize. When he said um, uh, the Lord's Supper, right? Before he was crucified, but it was now time. He gave the instruction for the Lord's Supper. And guess who repeats them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Paul, right? Because the Lord is saying, this is now doctrine. Even though I'm not yet dead, crucified, and, and buried, and raised again, this is what you are to go for. The new covenant in my blood, anticipating that he would shed his blood. And in fact, he did. We use the exact same thing there that we use in the Lord's Supper. Well, that's true with baptism as well. We baptize because the Lord told us to. All right. There's not a lot about baptism. Once you get out of the book of Acts, it's irrelevant. They baptized believers from the very beginning, and that's what we are to do. Paul says, people will use the uh, verse that Paul says, um, uh, I was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel, right? Are we apostles, right? No, that was his job. He did baptize, and other people were baptized within that church. As a matter of fact, it's very clear that all the Gentiles in that church were baptized. But Paul was making a statement about his ministry. Some people baptize, some people preach, some people do this, and some people do that, right? But baptism is a part of what we're supposed to be doing. I just say that because sometimes people email me and they'll have their own view on that issue. That comes from the doctrine known as hyper-dispensationalism, where they completely cut in half the book of Acts and they say, this applies, this doesn't, blah, 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 when in fact it's a transition from one to the other. It's not just dividing it. So just so you know, hyper-dispensationalism has incorrect doctrines, but it's not entirely incorrect. It's just, you know, what's that? It's just hyper. It's just hyper, that's right. So one thing, and I said this to a friend uh, who posted about it on Facebook a, a while ago, and I said, uh, you know, they said, well, that's hyper-dispensationalism, and, and, you know, that's just wrong. And I said, well, that's like taking the baby and throwing it out with the bathwater. They believe 47 precepts, you agree with 46 of them, and one you don't, and you say the entire doctrine is bad. You can't do that, right? We've got Reformed theology, which has got, if there's 47 precepts in Reformed theology, I disagree with 32 of them. It doesn't mean I still don't agree with the other 47 minus 32, whatever that is, 15, right? I agree with them. Okay, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because somebody teaches things that are incorrect doesn't mean that they also don't th teach things which are correct. As long as they are saved, believers of Jesus Christ, I'll listen to them, okay? Even if their doctrine isn't perfect. Once you get into things like the Job's Witness, I don't want to hear anything they say. Even if it's correct, I don't want to be infected by their theology in any way, shape, or form. But something like Reformed theology, I'll just laugh at the parts when they're wrong and we'll go on. Anyway, um... So here we have, um, what is apparent from this? I'll go back and read the last sentence. Christ worked through him, meaning Paul, to secure for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What is apparent from this is that the church is dependent on letters of Paul for its direction and edification. Okay, oh, I've read that entire paragraph. I'm going down to the next one. Um, life application. Paul never claimed anything as his right. He doesn't do it. Healing? Miracles, wonders, and so on, he never claimed any of them as his right. He did it when he was prompted. However, he knew that it was time to raise um, Eutychus. Was it Eutychus that fell out of the window? Yeah, right? 
And remember when Peter went and raised Dorcas, who is also Tabitha? Yeah. He didn't do that to everybody. There's no other record of them doing that, but the Lord was making a theological point with Peter, and then he did the same thing with Paul with Eutychus falling out the door, okay? But they never claimed that as a right, something that they could do all of the time, okay? So it wasn't something that he claimed. Instead, he allowed the work through, Lord to work through him. And so let's use this as an example in our own lives. By claiming something in the Lord's name to which we are not entitled, we bring embarrassment on ourselves and discredit upon his name. So that's, you know, like I said, if you want to go to a charismatic church, no problem. Yeah, I just, I'm going to teach against it in this one. I disagree with the uh, entire premise of what they teach. They take uh, acts and use it in a, de a prescriptive manner, et cetera, et cetera. Bad theology. Verse 15, 19. Yes. Read uh, Galatians 6, 14. Galatians 6, verse 14. Hang on just a sec here. Just a sec. Burke is trying to get me in trouble right now. Something I said, and he's he's angry at me. But God for Oh, yeah, I, he's not. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's where it all matters. Yeah, that, what he said here in this verse, he did about boasting. Reason for boasting. Right. Yeah. That's the reason for boasting, yeah. is boasting in the cross of Christ, boasting in him, boasting in his work, boasting in the things that uh, uh, matter, which is all centered on Christ, all of it, and the glory of God. Excuse me. Go ahead. By the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit, so from Jerusalem all the way around to like Ilaricum. Ilaricum. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Okay, very close. This one says signs and wonders instead of signs and uh, miracles. But Ilaricum. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, that's how I would pronounce this. Probably pronounce something completely different, but that's, yeah. Okay, anyway, let's see here. Verse 15, 19. This verse is the second half of what Paul started in uh, verse 18. In context and in its entirety, it says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power and the Spirit of God. And then it goes on, So that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul's boasting was in what Christ accomplished through him, not in his own deeds. Christ's work was manifest, as he says, in mighty signs and wonders. A good example of this is found, uh, this type of deed is found in Acts chapter 19. So we'll go there very quickly. You could take your uh, NIV uh, thing that's got the background. Yeah. And they pronounce that for you. Oh, do they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the, yeah. You're, you're talking about the NIV Live. Right. I'll be there in a couple months. I'm still in, uh, <laughs> I'm in two kings right now. Wait, one kings. One kings. CD from the I ain't going for it. I'm listening to that one at a time until I finish it. Okay, here's what it says here. Um, now you've got me, I forgot what I was looking for. You're looking for miracles. I got it. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Remember, uh, Peter had the same thing. A shadow fell on people and uh, they'd be healed. So there you go. That's, that's a good example of that working. Those are descriptive ver verses. They're not prescriptive. Um, having been so blatantly interrupted by Burke that made me forget my, uh, I'll tell you what, 
I get so, I hate to say this, I, I hate to say this, but they really butcher the Hebrew names and places. You know, they, they, they just oh, say I'm wrong. And so I, yeah, so I'm constantly, every time they say one wrong, I say it the correct way. And then sometimes, yeah, yeah, I, I'm like talking, I'll, I'll be like talking to him. Sometimes, oh, he'll get it right and I'll say, good job, you know? And then sometimes I'm not sure too, because I haven't gotten to that name and I'm not really positive. But when I know that it's just completely wrong, I, I let him know it. He doesn't answer, though. He just keeps talking. <laughs> anyway, um, unlike so many charlatans who fill the halls of Christianity today with false workings which have nothing to do with the Spirit but are often acts engaged in for profit, or those employed, employed in the tricks, these were truly manifestations of the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. They are attested to in God's Word, and they were given and confirmed in order to establish the apostolic work of Paul. Endowed with this power in which Christ worked through Paul, he made a circuit from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, as it says. Although his ministry, let me circle something really quickly here. Oh, my pen is falling apart. Um, endowed with this, uh, I'm sorry, although his ministry didn't actually begin in Jerusalem, he uses Jerusalem as the center of his discourse because it is the center of the gospel message from which Christ's word has gone out. Paul, like the other apostles, carried this message from Jerusalem and outward. Paul's ministry was in a circular route, and he used Illyricum as a destination because it was in the outward part of the arc of his circle, being in the area of modern-day Croatia, which is way, way up. I mean, he really did some traveling. Whether he actually went into Illyricum or not is not known, but he traveled at least to its borders. In his travels, he covered an immense amount of land and came in contact with many, many cultures and people. He was a tireless servant of the Lord in all that he did. He fully preached the gospel of Christ. This gospel message and those endowed with its witness are noted in his first letter to the Corinthians. Here's what he says there. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then the twelve, Cephas is Peter. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Life application. Paul's ministry was one of bearing apostolic authority. The apostolic age, guess what? It's over. It ended with the completion of the Bible. The amen at the book of at the end of the book of Revelation, that's the end of the Bible. And that is the end of the apostolic age. If people disagree, that's fine. Disagree with me. Don't try to change my mind on it because I will not come to any other conclusion than that. The apostolic age a had a purpose. Yeah, it had. Apostles were with Jesus. That's right. The apostle means sent one. An apostle, of Jesus, an apostle can be anybody. I could say, Jim, I want you to be a, an apostle for, for the superior word, and you would be an apostle. You would be one sent from the superior word. An apostle of Jesus Christ is a person who is commissioned and sent by Jesus Christ. That's right. Have you ever, His, heard, have you ever heard the apostolic church? Yeah. Oh, I've heard of them, and I've also heard of the apostolic authority being transferred from pope to pope, and I've heard of the oh, apostolic really? authority being transferred through the Episcopal church. I've heard it all. It, yeah, they believe that they have the laying on of hands, which has been a right in succession for it. Well, guess what? As bad as they are, I wouldn't want to be a part of that right in, of succession. So 
you know, it just people make claims on things that are unfounded. You go to the Word of God, you see what it says. An apostle of Jesus Christ is somebody commissioned by Christ. Okay, Paul even admitted, "I was one that was born out of due time." He was commissioned by a vision of the Lord. Right? right? right. He was he was an exception, and he was for a very good reason an exception. We talked about that in the Book of Acts, and maybe we'll do Acts again sometime. But other than that, there are no apostles today of Jesus Christ. There are apostles of churches, but why have that type of a title? It just it know. muddies the waters. Of, I never heard of it until we. We're living in Washington. Yeah. Well, they're out there. There are all kinds of people that claim that. So uh, anyway, just so you know. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, uh, where was I? It proclaims, uh, yeah, the Bible bears the work of God. Now it is our job to use this witness, the Holy Bible, for building up and edification of the church. Okay. The foundation of the prophets and apostles which proclaim Jesus Christ has been laid. It's laid once, that is it. Christ is the foundation, and then in Corinthians it says that the prophets and the apostles are the foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone. You say, well, that's a contradiction. No, because the word of the prophets and the word of the apostles spoke of Christ. So he's the foundation in both of them. Okay, it's just different terminology coming to the same conclusion. Christ is the foundation. Verse 15, 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ not known, so that I would not be building someone something on someone else's foundation. Okay. Foundation. Foundations. There you go. Somebody else's foundation. Okay. In his previous thoughts, Paul has said that it is Christ working through him in the things which pertain to God. Endowed with this ability and with this gift of this ministry, he went from oh him. Oh yeah, I said that was last uh, last verse. He went from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, fully preaching the gospel of Christ in this capacity and so he here states he lets the romans know that i have made it my aim to preach the gospel the greek word translated as made it my aim reflects an earnest desire or ambition it has been his heart's goal to preach not where christ was named paul saw this ministry as a foundational one he set out to establish churches rather than move into those areas where one was already established and thus build on another man's foundation God has endowed all people with certain desires and abilities. There are those who are missionaries, telling the gospel for the very first time. There are others who will establish churches, thus bringing together those who may already know Christ, but have not had a place of worship to be at. There are preachers, teachers, and congregants. Everyone has a place within the body, and at times the duties or missions will overlap. We all know that. <clears throat> Paul's goal was preaching and teaching to new converts. He didn't just give the gospel and move on, but after receiving converts, he would disciple them. This is seen, for example, in Acts 19 again. I'm going to take you there. Acts 19. And here's what he says. Acts 19, we'll go to 9. But some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. Uh, before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued on for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So there he is. He's spending two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and he's teaching people about the, uh, the gospel there. It wasn't like he just went into town, said, let me tell you about Jesus, and then left. Right? He stayed and preached to people. People get down on Billy Graham. I've heard this many, many times. They get down on Billy Graham because... 
he preached to people and then he left, right? That's his job. He is, what was, what, what did, would you call Billy Graham? Began with evangelist. That's exactly right. Billy Graham was an evangelist. That was his job, was to evangelize. But he never left people without saying something before he closed. What did he do? If you want literature, write to this address and we will send it to you. And he also said one more thing to every person in his crusades. He said at every single crusade, be sure to go to church Sunday morning. He said that to everybody. He understood his job as an evangelist and he understood that there are churches to teach people and to train them up and to give them a place of fellowship. I had no problem with what Billy Graham did. He was a man of faults, just like everybody else. And when he died, it was the most despicable display I've ever seen. People posting about him on really? Facebook and, you know, on blogs Christian. and the like. Yeah, supposed Christians just tearing the guy apart because they are jealous because he spoke to people and he preached to people and he gave people the gospel. And they'd find the minutest little things to tear him apart. I, I tell you what, that's the kind of thing I have no tolerance for. It is evil. It's a bunch of people that just have nothing to do but tear other people apart I, I just I find no joy in that at all anyway um, so that was Paul he went into the uh, Hall of Tyrannus and he did that for two years he was there to evangelize and he stayed and taught daily for two years but he also wrote letters of instruction and encouragement such as this epistle to the Romans there in Rome was a group of believers who had already come together probably without any apostolic leadership these converts might have been from the group who came to Christ in Jerusalem, such as those recorded in Acts chapter 2 at the first Pentecost in the church age. However they were established, Paul was writing to them for the sake of both exhortation and doctrine. He was exhorting them on to greater things, and he was giving them sound doctrine, which is what this entire epistle is. All right? He hoped to eventually go to Rome and meet with them, but without violating his precept of preaching where Christ was not named but rather as a stop for fellowship on his way to anybody? Spain. Spain. He was hoping to go to Spain. That's Romans 15, 24. Coming soon to a verse near you. Life application. In order to be an effective member of the church, one needs to decide what it is uh, that they can do to benefit the body. If sitting in church listening to instruction is all you wish to do, make sure to leave a gift or an offering. If you wish to go overseas and be a missionary, it takes planning and it takes funding. First, think about what you wish to do, and then determine to do it through reasonable planning and in a way which will benefit the church. You just go to church and you listen and you leave and you don't help out the church. You're not actually helping out anybody because you're not going out and telling people about Jesus and going on to do your own thing. Okay, everybody's got something that they should be doing. If you're not doing one thing, then do another. Okay, but encouragement is one great thing. You take Chris, right? She's a great encourager, a girl we do uh, missionary work with. She, uh, she's just a great encourager. She hands out more Bibles in a week than the whole, whole church together hands out tracts. I mean, it's amazing. So, you know, everybody's got their gift. Everybody needs to do something for the Lord. Verse 15, 21. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Okay, it's very close on this one. Other than told, it says announced, but it's other than that really, really close. 1521, once again, and for the last time in his epistle, he does something. What does he do? Quotes, uh, Isaiah. He quotes scripture. That's right. Last time in the epistle, Paul turns to scripture to confirm the validity of his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. He begins with, but as it is written. The but 
is given as a contrast to what he just said. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Instead of building where others had already laid a foundation, he was determined to go where the word had not yet been preached. As Israel had already received the news about, yes, as Israel had already received the news about Jesus, then this implies that the word was to go beyond Israel to the Gentiles. With this thought in mind, he says, as it is written. Paul returns to the scriptures to substantiate the going forth of the gospel beyond Israel, and therefore there must be a herald of this message, an apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, Paul saw himself as this instrument of God. Imagine that. He's writing scripture, and he's saying, this pointed to me. Somehow, maybe he realized it, maybe he just wrote it, but in the end, it points to Paul way back in Isaiah. His work would be what Isaiah was spoken of, speaking of. The final portion of scripture that he will cite in Romans comes forth from his often used prophet Isaiah. He cites there the intent, the intent of Isaiah 52, verse 15. That's all right. Isaiah 52, verse 15. Hang on here. Isaiah 52, verse 15. It's the intent. It's close, but it's not an exact quote of it. Um, he says, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what they had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. So there you go, right out of right out of the Bible. 27, 26, 24, 21, happens all the time. Okay, as long as it doesn't happen on Sunday morning, that's the important one. Okay, this is a fun class and we can have papers flying around and people talking and whatever. Um, okay, so this is from the Suffering Servant passage of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, which speaks of the work of Jesus as the Messiah on his first advent. From the unsighted portion of the verse, we see that Isaiah was speaking of Christ sprinkling what? Israel? The Jews only? Many nations. This implies that his blood would be shed not only for Israel, but for all of the Gentile people as well. Many nations. Next, Isaiah said the kings shall shut their mouths at him. Again, kings is in the plural. And how many kings did Israel have at any one time? Two. They had one. Well, well yeah, but... Split. No, no, they, well, yeah, no, that's Judah and Israel. I'm talking about one king in one place. That, that was the divided nation. Okay, but yes, gotcha. they had one king, okay? And guess what? At the time of Christ's coming, they didn't have any king, right? They were under Roman authority. So obviously, if Isaiah is speaking about the time of Christ, then he's speaking about the Gentile nations, okay? Kings is in the plural. This indicates that rulers of many nations will be silent before him, acknowledging his his lordship okay paul's citation then begins at this point he amends the verse for the context of his epistles but he doesn't substantially change the meaning the message is about the about the christ whose blood would be shed for the gentiles that it would be carried out to them they would go from a state of unknowing to that of perceiving what god had done they would go from having not heard to clarity of understanding and the only way that this could come about was if someone actually went and told them. Paul understood this and is conveying the message that he is the messenger. Once again, that to me is just an amazing thought that here he's writing these letters and he probably had the understanding because he was already told by Jesus, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. But he probably made the mental connection that Isaiah was actually writing about 
him about his ministry for Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he's writing about Christ and about what Christ would do, but somebody had to be used to do that. And there's Paul is that messenger, okay? It, rather amazing to think about. If he, went, if he went where someone had already laid the foundation, then they would have already had that word announced. They would already see, they would have heard, and they would have understood. But Paul's ministry was one of carrying the word to ears that had never heard. Imagine his thoughts as he wrote to the Romans. God was speaking about me through the words of Isaiah. It must have been a humbling notion. About 700 years before his birth, God implied that Paul would be God's herald of the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. And people dismiss Paul. They belittle him. They marginalize his writings, all because they want to stay under the law of Moses. It's hard to figure. It really is. It's, it's very hard to figure. And then you read the commentaries of people that, that when they have that type of mindset and they immediately get away from the uh, fact that the sons of Japheth, meaning, you know, the, the Greeks and the Romans and then up into England and Europe and then in the Americas, they have been the instrument of getting this message out for the past 2,000 years, for the most part. Okay. After Paul, that's kind of the way it's gone. Right. And when you read these comments by people that are in the Hebrew Roots movement, they say, well, this is after the church got Christianized. And they use these terms as if it's a bad thing. I, yeah, no, they, they, you get these people that will argue these things. And they'll say they got away from the understanding of the Hebrew Roots. Well, of course we did. That's what the Bible wants us to do. They want us to get away from the shadow to the substance. That's right, the reality of things. And that's why Paul wrote his letters is because everything in the Hebrew Roots movement is shadow. And as I said during that one sermon, if you have a table and it's got gold settings on it and everything, and somebody comes up and they try to grab the shadow, they come out with nothing. But when you take the table and the gold on it, you get the substance and you get the shadow with it. You get everything because the shadow is leading to the reality. If you have the reality, then the shadow is already possessed by you. So don't, uh, don't let people fool you into that type of theology. Christianized. I, 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 you know, how long, the, how long has that Hebrew roots movement? For 2,000 years. They it's what Paul warned about in the book of Galatians. That's almost the entire substance of the book of Galatians is get away from this Old Testament thinking. All right. For 2,000 years, this has been going on and it's reared its head from time to time. But now there's a couple of things that are going on. One, Israel's back in the land. Two, the language is reestablished once again. Three, we now have communication where we know that these things are going on. And when somebody walks into a church and they say, I'm Jewish, guess what? The first thing people do is fawn over him as if he's a specialist, right? Okay. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. You have to be trained in theology. Just because somebody is Jewish does not mean that he is very insightful in the things of theology. He may have good insights into one thing and not in another. But if you don't have sound theological training, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're African or if you're American or if you're whatever from Sweden. It just doesn't matter. You have to be trained in the Bible. Okay, that comes from reading the Bible, learning the Bible, studying the Bible, and then getting theology added into that. And that was one of the things that when I first came to the Lord, mom knows I read the Bible lots and lots and lots, right? But I had no theology. Understanding the Bible does not mean that you have good theology. 
Okay, theology is different than knowing your Bible. When you have the two together, understanding the Bible, understanding how things fit together, and understanding the concepts of theology, which actually takes a lot of training, then you will be a sound teacher. Okay, and I've got a long way to go in theology. I'm not trying to say that I'm a number one in theology, but I have been, uh, I went to the um, seminary that I went to. They taught on apologetics. They taught on the doctrines, the major doctrines of the Bible. There's 10 of them. You've got soteriology, harmatology, you've got Christology, you've got uh, uh, theology proper, on and on. There's about 10 major theologies. And you can study the rest of your life on those things and never know it all. Believe me, you'll never know it all. But you need to have at least a good roundness of those. Angiology is another one. Pneumatology. Uh, yeah. Well, they're easy once you think of it. Pneumatology. What is that? Numbers. No, no, no. Pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. The spirit. Okay. The doctrine of the spirit. Hamartiology. Okay. That comes from the Greek word hamartia, which is sin. The doctrine of sin. So once you know the word, it's no longer a big thing. Right. So angiology. That's pretty easy. No, the angels, right. So there you go. But you've got these major subject areas. And once you're trained in them, at least you can take what you know about the Bible and then put them into understanding. If you just know the Bible and you don't know the, the doctrines, you're going to have a lack. If you know the doctrines and you don't know the Bible, which a preacher I knew knew the doctrines very, very well. I won't give his name, but he had never, he had never, um, uh, read the Bible through, yeah. even though he knew the doctrines of the Bible. He was a great preacher. He gave great sermons, but he did not know the Bible. He and he, yeah, I won't give his name because everybody in here knows him. But when he admitted that to me, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Okay. You, you have to have a working of the two together. Anyway, let's go on. Um, where was I? We're in, what verse are we in? 22? We haven't gotten to 22. Okay. Oh, oh, we're still in um, 21 then. Okay, yeah. We're okay, life application. What's that? We're still seeing and understanding. We're still seeing and understanding. Okay, um, life application. In a way, when we participate in mission work, to have the gospel message carried to those who have never heard it, we're actually participating in the fulfilling of prophecy. Without boasting or thinking too highly of the part we play, we can tenderly look at the words of Isaiah and say to ourselves, God knew that I would be a part of the fulfillment of this great plan of his. Now that's a humbling thought, right? You think about it. We're trying to send Ray and Jess over to a place that has never been evangelized, right? Isaiah had to be writing about them as well. The message of Paul came from Christ. It went from Christ through Paul, and now it's going to go from Christ through Paul through them. So in some way, they are also included in what Isaiah was prophesying. And when we support missionaries like that, we're actually fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 52, verse 15. Okay, 1522. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Okay, short and sweet. We're going through a lot of verses today. We've gone through more verses today than I think we've ever gone through. In 14, in Romans 1, 9 through 15, Paul explained his desire to come to Rome and fellowship with them. And in verse 113, he said, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but I was hindered until now. Since that verse, he has given his discourse on the many issues which were on his mind. Finally, in verse 22, he has stated that, For this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. It is as if that opening statement way back at the beginning was the impetus for this masterful epistle. 
only after explaining the many issues of the faith that he has now returned to explain why he was hindered. He gave his thought at the beginning, he went through the entire epistle, and now he's getting to the point that he wanted to make at the very beginning, okay? Um, in other words, this concern was his foot in the door for explaining the many doctrinal matters that he wanted to impart. In his statement, I have been hindered, he uses a word which is in the imperfect tense. This denotes that it was a continuous problem, which implies that he had one hindrance after another as he strived to reach his desired goal of visiting the Romans. Everybody got that? The imperfect tense means it's something that just keeps going on and on. And he's trying to get to Rome and maybe he gets in a shipwreck or he's trying to get to Rome and he gets arrested or he's trying to get to Rome and the Holy Spirit says, listen, I want you to go to Macedonia. He's trying to get to Rome and he keeps getting hindered from his, his goal of getting to Rome. That's the imperfect tense in the Greek, okay? So these hindrances are part of his thought of verse 15, 19, when he noted that from Jerusalem around a year in his evangelistic endeavors and in his preaching of the gospel, where it had not been previously preached, in these actions, he was held back from actually making it to Rome. This then shows Paul's dedication to the ministry to which he had been called. Despite his great desire to fellowship with the Romans, the call of preaching the gospel had to be of paramount importance. In this, he hoped the Romans would understand the reception of a letter rather than the welcoming of the person into their presence. He wanted to go. I can't go. I'm writing you a letter. And eventually, he would hope that he got there. And did he get there? Yes. He got there in chains, but he got there. The Lord worked it out anyway. All right, life application. I can't believe there's another verse. Just short. When you get out of the major doctrine... The verses go really quickly. I mean, 15 and then chapter 16 is a bunch of names. Greet this person and greet that person. We'll be done with that in 30 minutes. Yeah, we'll be into 1 Corinthians in no time. Okay, life application. What? Oh, as followers of Christ, there are things we should be doing, and there are things we wish to be doing. These will at times conflict with each other. Using Paul's example in the book of Romans, we will find what is right and pleasing to the Lord. Paul strongly desired to visit those in Rome, but he knew that preaching of the gospel was of supreme importance. And so he placed his desires on the back burner and proceeded to continue walking on the path laid before him, proclaiming the gospel to those who needed to hear it. Good stuff. On uh, Sunday, I want if that lady comes up and talks to you, I want to hear what she says, okay? I've been tickled me to death. I was at Lowe's today, just else, and... Um, we were talking to this lady at the uh, return counter, and she said something, and I said, oh, that's because I preach. And she said, oh, well, where do you preach? And I said, oh, it's over. It yeah, I said, I just kind of blew it off. And I said, it's over on Superior Avenue. And uh, I said, she said, what's it called? I said, the Superior Word. And she said, the Superior something. I said, no, no, Word. I said, Superior Avenue, God's Word. Put them together, and you got something good. And she says, oh, yes. And she says, I attend 360. I said, well, so does Burke. I'll be seeing him in a couple hours. And she knew him. So anyway, but uh, he cannot think of who she is right now. So I'm wondering if she's going to come up and say hi. Well, but, if, if I can stay on that same vein. Oh, yeah? We were at the dinner last Saturday with the gal of waitress who was the 360. Oh. She did not know Burke. But oh. She knew your son. Well, that's, and that, you know, Caracol. she may have been thinking Caracol. of John Carrico. Yeah. She heard the name Carrico, and she may have been thinking of your son. But mm -hmm. she may have been thinking of you, too. I didn't describe you or anything. I didn't say you were ultra handsome and, you know, but... Uh, uh yeah bad, bad. yeah bad on me but anyway i uh 
I, I just, it, it was nice to meet a Christian and she just, that, nice? because you usually go to, uh, especially the return section or the customers oh. and those people get so much abuse. Yeah. They get yeah. so much abuse and my heart goes out to them. So I'm always extra nice to them. Like I had to go to Publix and do something at customer service today. And I was just trying to be nice to her. People just walk up while I'm there, 20 people walk up and half of them are just belligerent. Why do they have to people, why do they have to be that way? But anyway, let's go on. 1523. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you. Okay, there you go. That's very close, differently worded, but very close. So we'll go on. Speaking of his ministry, which went in a circle from Jerusalem around Eurolycum, Paul felt that he had covered the entire area in a manner sufficient to say that there was no longer any place that wasn't evangelized. Now imagine that. That's an area like from here all the way up to North and South Carolina and Georgia, all by of that. It, yeah, by foot oh, or by, by boat maybe. But can you imagine saying I've been to every town in Georgia, every town in North Carolina, every town? And I mean, this guy went all over. He went from from uh, Israel all the way through, you know, the part of Syria, and then he was up as far as Croatia and all, just Turkey everywhere. And he says, "I ain't got any more place to go." No, that, that is, I'm done. Some preacher that went all over the United States. Oh yeah, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> I don't know that guy. Okay, anyway, um, that you know, that was just the best trip. I, I got to tell you, that was just, I, I mean, it was. I was so tired. I was tired six months later. It took everything out of me. But if it was, I have one thing. The pictures that you put in with the daily. Yeah. I wish you would say where are you. Oh, I'm in um, Nevada right now. All of those. Well, they're all. And there's Hedico sitting in it's some governor's. Oh, desk. that you know what? That was that was Mark Twain's desk. It became oh, really? the governor's desk. But yeah, it, what it was, it was two desks that pointed to each other. I think it was him and his brother could sit and work together or something. Or uh, anyway, yeah, Mark Twain used that I have desk. No idea so. how many times we're always saying, I wonder where. We're okay. We're in Nevada right now. <laughs> those are pictures from Nevada, and they're all in the Capitol building. Okay. Anyway, okay. Speaking of his ministry, went around. Um, there was no longer any place that he could evangelize. And considering the amount of area, the immense number of towns and people, he was making quite a claim. But it should be remembered that he certainly instructed those he evangelized to continue on with the effort just as he had. Therefore, along with his work, those he brought to Jesus would have continued the process. Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, though written later, give his instructions on the establishment and conduct of the churches. When writing to Titus, he says this. Let me read you something from Titus. Uh, Titus, small little books. All you have to do to find Titus is you just go to the T books. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, right? Those are for the T books. Anyway, Titus 1 verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Right? So that's that's what Paul is doing. He's continuing on what he had started. So it is not at all improbable that the message either directly by Paul or by those he trained got to the entire region, just as he claims right here in Romans. And because of this, he now tells the Romans of his yearning to come to them. He had set aside his desires for the sake of spreading the gospel, and he now felt that he could follow through with what he so long wished to do without compromising anything in the process life application. Stick to what is necessary first and foremost. Only when that is accomplished should we endeavor to follow our other less important desires. 
This is a world full of people who need to hear the good news. Don't let TV or fun parties dull you to what should be the first priority in your life. Okay. I talked to a guy. Um, oh, you didn't ask me for this. Before you leave, I got to give that to you. Okay. I talked to him on the phone. I, I gave him a call and uh, we were talking. And uh, the, when he emailed me to set up an appointment to talk, I said, you can call on Monday, but I ain't going to answer. I said, that's sermon typing day. And I, I, I do not want to be bothered. You know, if people, it's got to be a real emergency for me to pick that up. If somebody calls and it's somebody that knows that I'm sermon typing, I get angry at them. I don't care who it is. But if it's an emergency, I'll pick up. And sometimes I just unplug the thing altogether because I'm having so much difficulty with the passage. And then on Tuesday, I've got something I do. And it takes all day, same thing. And then Wednesday, I have something I do, which I do every Wednesday. And this is priority. Even though there are other things that are probably more important in one way, these have to be done. And so I take care of that on Wednesday morning. And then, so in other words, if you got to set your priorities of what you are doing for Christ first. If you say, I'm going to read the Bible every day, that should be your priority before anything else that you do. If you say, I'm going to do it at nine o'clock in the morning, then you better set aside nine o'clock in the morning. Me, I do it when I first get up so I don't get distracted by anything else. But if you have a priority for the Lord, if it's mission work, you would better make sure that you are there on Saturday morning at 930, right? Tom knows that. He's been doing it now for, he's almost up to 12 years. He's 11 years. Wow. He's got, uh, what is it? It's October, November, two more months, and he'll be at 12 years. And he has missed a couple of Saturdays, and they've all been because of valid reasons, all right? I won't discuss what those valid reasons are, but he's never missed other than really, really valid reasons in 12 years. If that is what your calling is for mission work, you need to be there unless somebody is there to fill in. Last week, I couldn't. Oh, you said they'd be there at one o'clock? I said I had workmen coming Saturday to uh, do something at the house. You said they'll probably be there at one o'clock. One o'clock. Tom said it because they're supposed to be there at nine in the morning. And I thought, well, t maybe Tom is right. They didn't show up until Monday afternoon. Oh, yes, I wasted my entire mission work Saturday waiting on workers that didn't show up until Monday afternoon. I, oh, I've just, it's okay. You know what? With the weather, it, 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 you, you just have to accept it. I, yeah. But, you know, I, I would much rather have been out with you guys on mission work. But, you know, when you got something to do and, and uh, you know, and that's the only time that I really can get free is Saturday morning and sometimes on Friday. And that's about it. So there was no penny. There was no penny finding. OK, <laughs> well, we'll find him this week. OK, let's go. Um, yeah. Uh, prioritize yourself. Put your whatever it is for the Lord first and make sure that you stick to it. If you say I'm going to start going to church. And I hope this convicts people, whether it's attending church online or whether it's uh, actually coming to the Superior Word. If you say, I'm going to start going to church, you ought to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's that should be a priority. And I'm not saying that just because it's this church. Bert goes to a different church. Carol goes to a different church. Tom goes to a different church. So uh, and mom sometimes goes to a different church. So uh, when it comes down to it, there's only two people that I'm really trying to convict here. But if you say I'm going to attend church online, be there. Right. I was talking about, and I know she's here. I know she's here right now. I'm going to wave to her. This is Lisa over in Australia. I was talking to somebody about her today. I said, there is a girl. It was at the bank. Do you know that the bank on Siesta Key is closing? It's closing. So really? Tuesday is the last day. That was my last day because I always go in on Thursday. After 53 years of that bank being there and me, right, it's gone. Anyway. Okay. So here we go. Um, I was in there and I was thanking the girls for their time. And, um, 
one of the girls that was sitting with a customer, I said, ma'am, I hope I can interrupt for just a minute. I want to thank this girl. And uh, I gave her a track because I don't believe in witnessing to people while they're working. I just right. don't think that's the right thing to do. But I've never had a chance to have her when she's not working. So I gave her a track. And then they started talking about the church. And I mentioned Lisa. I said, we've got a girl that attends from Australia. And two o'clock in the morning, you have to be up on Monday morning to be at the so Superior she Word, live. she watches live. It's always posted. You have yeah. to be live to post it, and it's always posted. And then the Bible study, I'll get up tomorrow morning, and that Bible study will be there, which means she was there, what, Friday afternoon or whatever. Lisa, you have my heart. I got to tell you, anybody that is willing to do that, she is dedicated. So uh, just unbelievable. What a precious soul. But if you're going to make a commitment to go to church, go to church. If you're going to do mission work, do your mission work. If you're going to read your Bible, which I pray you would, read your Bible. The Lord's things should come first. Everybody has time for TV. Everybody's got time to go out for dinner and to a movie. Everybody's got time for that. But they don't have time to put the Lord first. One of the things I've always learned in life is that I'm like, oh my God, Speak I up. just don't have time for this. Yeah. And you do it, and suddenly, out of nowhere... The Lord makes time. Time becomes available. It is just like insane. It's Absolutely. Like it, it always happens. You're right. You're right. So. Well, I will give you, I, I may have said this in this class, and I hate to repeat myself on something like this, but I will say this because you brought that up, is when I first met the Lord, if I've said this, tell me to stop and I'll stop. But when I first met the Lord, I worked seven days a week. And I worked before the sun came up till after the sun went down every day, seven days a week. I did that for years and years. And I met the Lord and I said, I'm going to take a day off. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it because I got to do these jobs. I've got this account. I've got this account. I got all these jobs. Plus I got the wastewater. I've got to do these things. And I said, I'm going to do it. And I took a day off and I did nothing, right? I couldn't even eat because if I ate, I'd get energy and I'd want to go out and work. So I wouldn't eat all day long, right? But I found out every single job that I did in seven days, I could now do in six days. Wow. And I didn't give up one job, wow. not one of them. That's the truth. That's on Hita Cole will tell you. It's the way I it works. It's the way it works. You put the Lord first, he is going to honor that. So there you go. 1524. 24. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. Okay. After I'll keep going. After I have enjoyed your company for a while. Okay, this is this is structured differently. So read it again and then I'll read it. Okay. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Okay. It's just structured differently. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I might enjoy your company for a while. So the last of it is close, but the rest of it is just all completely differently structured. So, okay, here we go. 1524, and we got a few more minutes. We'll get that done and maybe one more. Paul's intent, intent, which is expressed in the previous verse, was to come to Rome for a visit. But this was not the purpose of coming there. Rather, it was only to be a stop on the way to Spain. Once again, Paul's life was directed to mission-type evangelism. He desired to preach the gospel where it had not yet been preached and to establish churches as he went. His desire to visit Rome was merely to fellowship with them, encourage them, and as a point of stopping for help along the way. In this verse, he uses the term, the Roman term for Spain. He says Hispania rather than the common Greek term, which is, does anybody know the Greek for Spain? 
We still use the term when we talk about the peninsula to this day. No, the Iberian Peninsula. The Greek term is Iberia. That's right. The Iberian Peninsula included the entire region of Spain and Portugal. This was Paul's next goal in his work. It's not clear if he actually ever made it to Spain. He was imprisoned in Rome, but some early writings state that he was released for two years before being imprisoned again. In these two years, it is claimed that he actually did go to Spain. We can't prove that, but it is claimed. Regardless of whether he made it there or not, he stated that he hoped to be helped on my way by you. This sentiment is found at other times in the New Testament. A notable one is found in the book of 3 John, where it says this. It's just a very short little passage. I'll, I'll ask him someday. Oh, yeah, you, uh, yeah, you get to ask him someday. All right, stand in line, buddy. All right. uh, 3 John, there's a, yeah, which chapter in 3 John? 3 John, verse, uh, I'll go to 5 first. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. It's very similar to what Paul did. Paul did take from one church to rob for another, and as he admits there. In other words, he didn't want to be a burden on these people, so he actually was a burden on the people that could afford it less in order to not be a burden on them. He had reasons for it. It's discussed in the book of Acts, and you'll, again, discuss it in the book of Corinthians, because it's Corinthians that he robbed Macedonia for. So, anyway, um, uh, let's see here. It was incumbent on the established churches to assist missionaries because there was little help to be expected from the Gentiles. Well, guess what? Has anything changed? Are Ray and Jess going to go over to Papua New Guinea and have them pay their way? No, the people are poor. They've got their own lives. They may not know Jesus. And if they don't come to Jesus, guess what? They're not going to help them anyway. They have to be funded on their way. This is the way of the world when it comes to missionaries. Very few are self-sufficient. There's one that I know that I met through the uh, Romans Bible studies. And uh, I won't give her name or where she is because I don't want to compromise anything. But this person is almost self-sufficient as a missionary. And that is somebody does help her that I do know of. But uh, for the most part, you know, some people just go there and they get to work and they don't, they, they're doing the Paul thing, the tent makers, right? They're doing something and they're keeping themselves active. And, and uh, my hat is off to people like that. I got to tell you what. Now, you do know that there is one organization called Tent Makers, right? Have you heard of them? Okay. Tent Makers is an organization. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're not around anymore. I'll have to look on the internet. But years ago, they were a missionary organization like YWAM or all these other organizations. And they're called um, tent makers. And the reason why is because they did what Paul did. They would go to countries where you could not be a missionary. And the only way they would do that would be to go there on a work visa. And so they would get a work visa for like, I've got a skill as a, a wastewater technician and they need wastewater technicians. So, okay, we'll hire you. But he actually had the intent of evangelizing while there. And so the tent makers would do that as a kind of a subterfuge to get into the country. They're legally doing what they're doing. But then they would go further and they would be trained by the tent makers and how to evangelize and, and be a missionary while working in that country, right? English teachers, a lot of people will do that, et cetera. But uh, are they, did yeah, you find them? They're still around. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What is it called? The tent makers or tent the makers Bible mission. Okay. There you go. And That's that. recruiting. Good. They're recruiting. Do they need wastewater people? Because if they do, I just did my CEUs. So I am up to date for two more years. 
He's yes. not going anywhere. Josiah's Venture, which Courtney is a part of. Yeah. They go to the Czech and that they oh, yes. to teach English to the To get their foot in the door. Yeah. To get their visas and then they go do that. That's exactly yeah. the same thing. Josiah's yeah. venture. Yeah. Okay. Same thing. They they go with one person purpose, but yeah. they're actually intending because they have a heart for missions. So there you go. But yes, I just finished my CUs for wastewater. I will be uh, certified as a wastewater A operator and a water C operator for the next two years. That means from 2019 20, till 2021, I'm certified. So, so if they need me overseas, you, I'm going. We're to call you when our water is orange. And yeah, don't call me. <laughs> call call Roto Rooter, okay? Um, okay, let's see here. Yeah, but I keep my, my uh, licenses up just in case. And that was a lot of work this past month. I spent, uh, I had to do uh, 30 hours of courses. Do they to, call them CEUs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, CEU is a so continuing like, education yeah, unit. Continuing. That's right. So I did 30 hours That's of those last month. Yeah. yeah, well, it used to be they didn't, but guess what? They get money for every CEU you take. And if you take 30 CEUs, there's three, $400. Now multiply that times 10,000 operators and the state oh, breaks wow. it in, it's right? A, it's a big business. That's all it is. It's big business. Okay, so here we go. Um, uh, yeah, okay, I'm going to read this paragraph again. It was incumbent on the established churches to assist missionaries because there was little help to be expected from the Gentiles. Okay, this wasn't because of the coldness of the Gentiles so much as it was a policy of the missionaries. The less burden on those being evangelized, the better. Paul remained a tent maker during his working years in order to not be a burden on those he ministered to. This is still seen in the mission world today. Support normally comes from the sending churches, not from those who receive the missionaries. And so, in order to receive their help and to fellowship with them, he desired to visit them in Rome that he says he might enjoy their company for a while. The term he uses implies being gratified or satisfied in their fellowship. He was looking forward to coming to them and the need of their encouragement and leaving fully encouraged. Good job, Paul. Life application. The need for missionaries has never ended. The world still has many places which haven't heard the gospel. But mission work is not an end in and of itself. It should be a means of establishing churches and then moving on. Too often, and I've been critical about this in the past, too often mission work devolves into a constant state of externally supplied ministry. Rather, our missionaries should encourage self-sufficiency among those they evangelize and then move on because there's always more fields that they can go to. They should not just say, this is our home and we're going to be here and preaching to you for let the natives take over and run the uh, the affairs. And, you know, we've got these people over in uh, Africa that actually are their own support group like Isaac. I mean, people help him from externally, but that guy, even if he didn't have support, he'd be out there ministering sure. to his people. But people need to be trained, they need to be educated, they need to know what to do. That should be the job first and foremost of missionaries, is to get the gospel out, to get the people trained, get them established, and then to go. And come back once a year, come back whatever at, at frequent intervals, but they need to let those people advance in their their lives okay that it, it's just an important thing it's if not then it's just like you know the government gives people welfare and what happens you become dependent on it and you just tend to rely on it well if the missionary dies then what they haven't been properly trained and everything falls apart people need to be trained okay we got time for just one more 1525 and we'll Hold be on done just a second he, go ahead i was carrying on his theme here he said that i could enjoy your company 
and in verse one, he says that I can impart something to you and you to me. Right. Oh yeah. He's carrying that theme along. I don't know you personally, but you know, absolutely. I've heard of you, and you're you're heard of throughout all the world. Through all the world, and so he's going to get something from them just as much as he's still pumping them up. Absolutely. (laughs) Paul is a a great encourager. Yeah. All the way from beginning to end. Absolutely. Okay. Here we go. Fifteen twenty-five. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. Okay, yeah, when I lifted my hand, that was just talk louder because somebody emailed me and said I had a hard time hearing people talking last week, and it was two weeks ago, and I forgot to say it last week. So, okay, 1525, before he makes any anticipated visit to Rome on his way to Spain, Paul notes that he first intends to go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. This is one of many internal clues that this epistle is authentic. We're going to read this in Acts 19, verse 21, and that'll show us. Um, I'm going third time I've been in Acts 19 today, but we've got to go there. Acts 19, verse 21 says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go see Rome. So there you go. Okay, it's uh, there's no doubt that these epistles, everything confirms itself in the Bible. It's a self-validating, uh, uh, you know, when people say, when you are speaking in the New Testament, and you're writing a commentary or reading a commentary on a verse, and people will say, oh, well, uh, how do you know that's true? Well, because it's prophesied in the Old Testament. And normally that is what's called circular reasoning. You're using the source to get back to uh, validating itself, okay? And that's not normally a good way of doing things. But with the Word of God, it is. Because the Word of God in the Old Testament has done what? It has validated itself in prophecy of the New Testament. So we don't need to worry if the Old Testament is the Word of God or not. We know that it is. It's a self-validating text. And then when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament fits in seamlessly with it. When they cite the Old Testament saying this is confirmed in the New, the Bible validates itself. We don't need to say, well, that's circular reasoning because you're arguing from the source. There's another term I'm using. That's another fallacy where you're arguing from the source as well. But anyway, um, uh, we don't need to use that uh, as a fallacy when we're talking about the Bible because the Bible validates itself through fulfilled prophecy and other type of ways, historically, archeologically, on and on it validates itself okay so let me get we got just a minute and we got to get done um x supports paul's words in romans and his words here and in other epistles support the account in acts the bible is a unified work which internally validates itself again and again as we read its pages we can have the confidence that there truly was a guiding hand of inspiration as the holy spirit breathed out god's words through the various authors In both 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, and he will explain the necessity for this collection and ministry a bit more in the verses ahead. It must be remembered that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and therefore in order to maintain harmony between the Jewish believers and the Gentiles, whatever he could do for the Jews in Jerusalem would help in that endeavor. And so he painstakingly and meticulously prepared his collection for them, and wanted to be present when it was transferred to those in need in Jerusalem. Life application. Gifts and offerings are still as important today as they were in the early church. They should be considered carefully and given in a way which the most beneficial use of the money is made. 
Why would anyone give to a church which supports issues such as abortion, sexual perversion, either locally or within the hierarchy? We are accountable to the Lord for what we do with our gifts. So just as Paul did, consider cautiously how you will handle your giving, right? It just It's an important thing. Too often we overlook those type of things and we find out that uh, we're all have, gonna have to stand before the Lord and we're gonna have to make a, an accounting for where we spent our Sunday morning or you know who we gave to what church and for what reason and uh uh you know when i attended the methodist church that's why i left that's where we yeah i i i remember that the whole class was full the next weekend i mean but you just have to say i love this place i love the people but i'm bailing out i am not going to give my money to a church which is going to promote this okay we got to pray it's time to go heavenly father we thank you so much for this wonderful book oh my goodness Mm. book of romans is just so filled with beauty and we thank you that it relies on the Old Testament. It shows us the prophecies fulfilled, and it shows us how they were fulfilled, and it shows in whom they were fulfilled. And even that today they're still being fulfilled in certain people that have dedicated their lives to the, the spreading of this wonderful message of Jesus. And so, Lord, tonight we'd like to say a special prayer for our missionaries, those who are overseas and those who are maybe alone and, and struggling with their own trials and troubles. and. Uh, be with them. Let them know that you are there and help them to understand that they're doing wonderful things and they are appreciated, even if it isn't said to them specifically at times, that it's on the hearts of your people that know the the goodness that they are sharing in their lives and with their lives. And Lord, we also pray for those people we mentioned at the beginning of the church, hoping that they'll all come to uh, restoration, whether it's in their their life as physical life or their, their dealings with uh, things that have occurred which have worn them down. And especially also we pray for those that are still facing heavy rains and winds right now with the storm up in the north. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. 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 Okay, here we go. Ah. So I was concerned that it was not on. Yeah, it, well, it, is, it on. is? Okay. It is. All right, good. We're Linda, good. my IT